being able to lead teams across different cultures, business climates, customs, and, and laws of the land really shapes you and can help differentiate you as you move forward in your career. Welcome to the Business Class Podcast, where we dive into conversations with alumni, students, faculty, and staff from the University of Dayton School of Business Administration. You'll hear career advice, conversations about ethical decision-making in business, and listen to stories from life on the UD campus. Here's your host, Dean Trevor Collier. Hello, and welcome to the Business Class Podcast. Today, I'm joined by 1981 UD School of Business alumnus Tyrone Parnell. Tyrone spent 39 years working for IBM as he was promoted into roles with increasing levels of responsibility, concluding in a role as managing director of a large divestiture. Tyrone has significant experience working with cross-functional executive teams to manage succession planning, talent development, and customer acquisition across the globe. Thanks for joining me today, Tyrone. Thanks for having me, Dean Collier. I'm thinking we could start today, Tyrone. Could you tell us a little bit more about your last role at IBM and, and what was the divestiture you were responsible for? A divestiture is the act of selling an asset, a business, or a part of a business. Sure. Um, ironically, divestitures have always intrigued me my whole career, and this opportunity uh, allowed me to leverage a portfolio of skills and, and actually build on some new ones. I was the managing director of roughly about a billion-dollar divestiture of our collaboration, commerce, and security products. And uh, in that role, I led a worldwide team that included uh, HR finance, technical support, sales, legal, and government relations across 17 different global markets. Wow. And how, how long were you in that role? And, and what, were, what were some of the you know, challenges and, and successes that you experienced? I was in the role for roughly uh, close to two years, 18, 24 months. Um, the vestiges, one of the things that surprised me about the vestiges, you hear a lot of discussion about the vestiges. There's always the market reaction and the headlines. But underneath that, you need to have a very disciplined process to transfer and integrate, reintegrate the assets of the buyer in order to sustain the fiduciary and customer set responsibilities to all parties affected. So it's really a complementary partnership that makes a, a smooth transition of a divestiture take place. Uh, I found that there were four principal uh, ecosystems that you had to make sure that were tightly uh, integrated. First, you have the sellers, customers, employees, the back-end processes, and their reseller community. You have that likewise for the buyers. But then there's the uh, government entities, and in this case, there were over 17 different uh, markets uh, where you had to make sure that you uh, were delivering a solution that was in compliance with the government regulations for divestitures. Well, so you you talked there about different global markets, and, and I know in your career you spent a lot of time in foreign countries. Could you share some of the cities where you lived and how how life abroad impacted your career? Sure, I um, I spent about six years in uh, Tokyo, uh, responsible for uh, the Asia Pacific distribution business. Uh, we look at it uh, from the lens of retailers T and T and CPG. Uh, those were the distribution industries that I was responsible for. Had uh, teams in Korea, China, Australia, Singapore, and of course, uh, Japan. Um, so that was one role. The second one was a um, global leadership role in 
uh, Bay, Switzerland, which is the headquarters for Nestle. I uh, was responsible for the overall global relationship between IBM and Nestle and uh, spent about three years in that role. And then prior to the divestiture, I led our um, channel partner strategy worldwide for our Watson IoT solutions and spent a lot of time in Munich, Germany, where our Watson IoT headquarters was based. And so that, that's, I believe, when you say Watson IoT, you're, you're talking, we, we see this on commercials, okay. right? This is, this is what IBM talks yeah. a lot about. Yeah, this is the Internet of Things, the ability to integrate analytics into uh, products to sustain uh, the performance of those products, to pull intelligent information off of those products, to allow them to communicate with uh, customers, uh, AI systems to generate more efficiencies. And so what, what was life like? Let's start with you know, Germany. What, what was life like in Germany? Yeah, that, that was a role where I spent a lot of time commuting between the U.S. and Germany. I, I wasn't based there, but the, uh, the Internet of Things opportunity allowed me to work with some international manufacturers because most of the manufacturers uh, quickly gravitated to the Internet of Things opportunity, and mostly in the maintenance area, first and foremost, allowing them to pull data off of devices to affect their uh, their maintenance performance and reduce mean time to failure for products. What about Switzerland? How were you were you based there, or was that also sort of a, a commuter job? Yes, I was based in Switzerland in a, in a little town called Lutri, uh, Lutri, Switzerland. It was right between Lausanne and Bavay. Uh, I spent a lot of time there working with Nestle. Uh, we had a great relationship with Nestle and supporting their their ERP systems around the world, yeah, as well as um, their sales systems. The Nestle opportunity allowed me to work with uh, a number of their different divisions, particularly uh, research, sales and marketing, and uh, their manufacturing facilities around the world. So aside from the job, what was it like just living in Switzerland? What, what was... What was what did you like? What was what was hard to transition to after being, uh, you know, from from the United States? Well, I'll tell you, Switzerland was probably one of the easier moves I made. Uh, Switzerland is a is a great country, uh, very inviting, uh, has a strong sense of community and family. In the little town I lived in, one of the things I I enjoyed uh, six o'clock. Uh, there were bells that would ring to let you know it was time to close the shops. Um, very strong sense of, of, uh, of, uh, commitment to the workforce. Highly, uh, what fascinated me is highly, uh, technology motivated. Um, a lot of the, uh, cities were wired with some of the latest and greatest technology for providing citizens with self-service capabilities as it related to, uh, signing up for your license. Uh, one of the negatives was the the uh, the country was pretty well wired, so you'd get home and uh, you'd get this envelope in the mail, and there was a a uh, invoice for a speeding ticket. Uh, they had electronic speeding systems uh, all over the country. Did you have to pay for that, or did you put that on IBM's tab? <laughs> <laughs> I think I had to absorb that. <laughs> and what about what about Southeast Asia? How was how was that how was that area to live in? 
Now, Southeast Asia was very fascinating. Uh, I'll never forget uh, one of the first things I was I was told by the uh, area general, excuse me, the area general manager, the Asia Pacific general manager, uh, when I first arrived there. Uh, he, he made it very clear that uh, even though you, you you know the what to do as it relates to uh, distribution industry, as far as the solutions, the business cases. Um, the how will be different by every geography as it relates to the business climates, the customers, the laws of the land. So those, <clears throat> excuse me, those opportunities that I realized in uh, Asia Pacific were very fascinating from the standpoint of uh, customer engagement models in Korea were very different than customer engagement models in, let's say, a Singapore. Uh, there was a strong sense of team in some of the smaller countries I worked in, like Malaysia, uh, Seoul, Seoul, Korea. Uh, but there was a strong appreciation uh, of the Western way. A lot of the senior executives I worked with in, in Asia wanted to know specifically some, what were some of the more progressive, in a way, innovative business cases that were being presented. How could you transform their business? A uh, perfect example was I uh, worked very closely with the airlines right after SARS. Uh, a number of the airlines were caught flat-footed as uh, they receive a lot of their profit from the belly of the plane, which is cargo. They wanted to know how to transform their systems in order to reduce the cost and verbalize the cost based on revenue coming in. So we had a very successful business model initiative that we worked with, with a lot of the airline executives on a strategic framework for transforming their, their businesses. What advice, Tyrone, would you provide to younger alums or, or current students thinking about their careers that might be a little little reluctant or a little nervous to take an international assignment? I will tell you, I, uh, I say if your personal situation allows you the opportunity, go for it. In my experience, it gave me that, that third dimension um, that I just talked a little bit about. You know, you're, you're going to acquire the, over time, you're going to acquire the hard skills, the industry competencies, uh, knowledge and processes, uh, you know, an accounting ledger is an accounting ledger is an accounting ledger. So also acquire soft skills over time, communications capabilities. But the area that really uh, rounded me personally was that third area that I just talked about, and that is the humanity skills. Being able to lead teams across different cultures, business climates, customs, and, and laws of the land really shapes you and can help differentiate you as you move forward in your career. That's great. Great advice. Thank you. Let's transition back to some of your time on campus here at the University of Dayton. So you're now currently serving in a role on, on our Business Advisory Council, and, and thank you for your service there. And so you've been back to campus multiple times in recent years in that capacity. What are the new additions to campus that you find most appealing? And maybe what do you miss a little bit about the old campus? Well, first of all, the Brown Street uh, transformation is just uh, unbelievable, quite frankly. I, uh, I was very pleased to see how the university has grown. Um, I'm impressed with the new housing complexes. Uh, come a long way from Mary Kristen founders when I, when I was rolling <laughs> through campus, uh, the physical activity center, um, 
as well as I had the opportunity last time I was there to uh, attend a game at UD Arena. I had not been to UD Arena in quite a while. And I see you you really opened it up with the renovations and, and the energy is just as strong as ever coming out of, out of the arena. It's, it's top class. And I don't think there's a better place to watch a game. I would absolutely agree. And, uh, you know, with the, the, the multi-ethnic uh, center that's coming, um, that's going to be impressive as well. So many of, of our alums identify with a certain house or a street on campus. You just mentioned some of the dorms. Is there a specific house or dorm on campus that sticks out in, in your memory of UD? Yes, my first, uh, my first dorm room was up in Stewart Hall. And made that long track uh, a mini winter day up the mountain, as we used to call it. Uh, so I have fond memories of that. And then it was one of the first uh, sets of students to move into the Garden Apartments right there on uh, on Stewart. So oh, fond nice. memories of the Garden Apartments. Do you have any good stories from your time at UD that you're you're willing to share with a with a public audience? And and remember, your family might be listening to this, Tyrone. <laughs> Um, I'll tell you, I'll share with you a, a, uh, event that was very enlightening. Uh, the time I was there, we had this distinguished speaker series and, um, uh, uh, the, the series was, uh, was really oriented towards bringing in, uh, leaders in the community. And I attended uh, a series of those and it really kind of shaped, um, me around the area of making sure that you give back to the community, um, making sure that as you take your skills to the business world, don't forget about the community at large. And it was quite impressive. And it, it really stuck with me to always focus on the greater good while, while you're there to, you know, amass skills and, and go out and make a living for yourself and your family. Uh, there was this, this uh, cadence, if you will, of, the need and focus on always giving back. And that's one of the things I, I cherished about that speaker series. Well, I know, I know recently, Tyrone, you worked together with some of the brothers from your fraternity when you're at UD to, to give back to UD. Is that something you'd be willing to, to share with our listeners? Absolutely. Um, one of the, uh, I think one of the things that really shaped my life was, uh, at a young age, going back to high school here, just real quickly, um, Phi Beta Sigma Fraternity Incorporated uh, came to my high school, and uh, they started this uh, this interest group to uh, to create uh, and develop young men uh, to go out in the community and be able to give back. And as a part of that, they have chapters on campuses across the U.S. When I arrived at at University of Dayton, they had a chapter called their uh, Iota Theta chapter. I joined that chapter, and uh, I have some you know, relationships from being involved with with the chapter for over forty years. Um, during the pandemic, a number of us were staying in touch via Zoom meetings, and we said, you know, we want to really step back and take a look at what the future of Iota Theta chapter meant to us, and make sure that it is always there to bring individuals through the University of Dayton. Uh, when we start adding it up, there were some, you know, over 30, 300 years of engineering talent that came through there that was in the chapter. 
over 200 years of sales and marketing talent. We had just about every discipline uh, that you could think of. And we said, let's make sure that uh, this chapter always remains there. So we vowed to put together an endowment and uh, we pledged uh, to uh, support that endowment and put it in place so it will always be there for a scholarship to help future Sigmas uh, come through the university at Iowa Theta chapter. And uh, was very pleased to work with the advancement team in putting the, the framework for that together. And it uh, was uh, a great moment for us when we uh, presented our pledge check to uh, President Spina at the dedication of the uh, African-American Divine Nine um, tribute uh, during the reunion weekend. That's pretty awesome. How many, how many, uh, how many brothers were, were a part of that with you? Uh, 12, 12 of you. That's really brothers. special. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for, thank you for that. Uh, thank we, you to your, your other 11 brothers that I haven't met. You got to introduce me to them sometime, buddy. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Are there any courses or, or faculty or staff members that, that you think back upon your, your time at UD and, I think, wow, that, that really helped shape me. I'll tell you, um, the ethics course uh, was one that really shaped me. Uh, I was raised in a, uh, by my grandparents, and uh, they uh, were very uh, clear on, uh, you know, it was black or white. It was right or wrong. And as I uh, matriculated to college and I was thinking about this, this business role, I, I realized that uh, there was something out there in the ethics class. They kept talking about this, this gray area <laughs> and don't get caught in the gray area. <laughs> and I'm like, what is this gray area? And it really shaped me as they stepped through the framework for making sure that you maintained your integrity as you conducted business uh, going forward. That, that was one that really shaped me. Can you think of an example of, of something you experienced in your career where you were in that, that so-called gray area and, and how, you, how you might have tackled it? Um, well, first of all, I never went to the gray area. I think that's the key. Um, there are always guidelines, guardrails, and... Uh, and laws that tell you where the line is. And I guess that's the point I was making about how the business ethics class really shaped me. Um, in my experience in, in IBM, there's a business conduct guidelines process that we always go through each year and you sign off on it. And you not only hold yourself accountable to it, but you hold yourself accountable when you're, when you're interacting with, with, with customers and business partners. And that is so important. And one of the areas that I've, I've witnessed that people uh, lose sight of is that, you know, the reward can never be greater than the, the value that you create. And uh, as business pressures and deadlines drive people, uh, you have to remember, for me, it was always focus on how you were raised. Two, your DNA shapes you for how you want to 
engage with people going forward. So no matter what was at stake, what I always focused on is when people talk about the gray area, the consequences have never changed. And those consequences are irreparable damage to your reputation, possible incarceration, and the loss of the ability to provide for your family. Those I never wanted to put at risk or um, personally experience. That's that's great advice for for our current students and, and young alums. Let's do a let's do a fun question, Tyrone. If if you had one meal on or near campus, where would you eat? <laughs> I, I'm probably going to be uh, with ninety percent of the folks. And what well, did you say, on campus or off? On or near? Your choice. On or near? Well, it, it's it's definitely you know Pine Club. I, I, I would imagine that's about 90% of the answers you get. Uh, I get a lot of Milano's. Um, yeah, a, a, lot, ah, a lot of the answers Milano. I get, are, when I was a student, it was Milano's. Now now that I have some money, it's Pine Club. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was going to say, uh, Milano's, definitely the uh, chicken Philly steak sandwich. Now I'll give you a wild card. Another one of my favorites was, I don't know if it's still there, uh, the, uh, the Old Red Barn. It was a restaurant down there on Brown Street. They had a great fish sandwich. I've never heard of that one. That is a wild card. You, you, <laughs> you won. You won that one. Uh, that's fantastic. I'll have to look up the old Red Barn. What What drew you to UD, Tyrone? How did you How did you th- hear about the place, and and what made you decide you wanted to come here for college? Well, this is an interesting story. The stars kept lining up and the dots kept connecting. I, I knew I wanted to uh, stay in Ohio, and my plan was to, to major in business slash computer, computer science, was not sure, and uh, pulled out all of the uh, the big eight-inch binders. I think they were called the, the collegiate binders and went through those binders, and UD kept coming up in the top five. As I looked at uh, the curriculum being offered, professor to student ratio, aid packages, um, endowment size, funding, and student life. So that was, that was one. The second item that drove me was my uncle lived in Dayton, and he owned a, a pharmacy in Dayton, uh, Gettysburg, for, for years. And he would come to visit, and he kept telling me how progressive the city was and uh, how much cachet the University of Dayton uh, carried in southwest Ohio. He would rattle off all of the, the great companies that, in Dayton that were hiring students like Reynolds, Wrightpad, Standard Register, etc. And he told me I really should consider it. Then one night, I'm watching a basketball game, and they're televising UD and Notre Dame. And there's this guy going to the left, they can't stop him, driving to the right, spin move, drop step, 25-foot jumper. He is giving Notre Dame the business. And uh, they kept panning to the UD Arena student section, and they had the signs that kept saying, UD baby, and the place was going crazy. Next thing you know, I'm standing there in my bedroom going, oh, I think think this is the place. I think this is the place. And that guy was Johnny Davis. 
Did you get to meet Johnny when you came to UD? He had gone when I got there. Oh, too bad. He had gone when I got there. But uh, right after that, I said, you know, it checks all the boxes. And uh, I talked to my uncle, told my dad, I said, I think we're headed to, I think we're headed for a road trip to UD. And uh, we went down and everything's worked out ever since. So you said stay in Ohio. Where did you, where did you grow up in Ohio? Akron, Ohio. Okay. Just outside of Cleveland. So that's what, about three hours from campus? Yes. About, yeah, about three hours. And did you find Dayton to be significantly different than Akron? Yes, I, I found it to be it was interesting. Uh, quick story. I, I was talking to my dad about, you know, going to Dayton and he mentioned uh and I said uh or University of Akron and he mentioned he said, you know, I, I think your career will be outside of Akron. Um and I said, Why do you say that? We're the rubber capital of the world and he mentioned, you know, one day very soon they will not produce tires inaccurate and uh, the city's going to go through a quite a different transformation and uh, during the, the late 70s early 80s that transformation started and as i uh, came home every summer i could see it changing so it was a i came up it was a boom town industrial town like i said we had the big four rubber companies and everything was going great by the time i uh, went off to college and came back, you could see that transformation start to begin. And they were trying to move to a, a service-based economy. On the other side of the coin, arriving in Dayton was uh, very progressive. Uh, during my, my four years there, um, you had strong retail in the center of town with Elder Beermans and I think it was Reichs and strong base banking system. Right. Pat was booming. And, uh, as I said, and as I mentioned earlier, you had quite a few of uh, the national corporations there. So uh, I love my time in, in Dayton, and uh, it was very inviting, and, and it really shaped me. Your dad had a lot of foresight there, talking about what was going to what was going to come for Akron. That's uh, that's impressive. Yeah, yeah, I, that that blew me away. I I um, I would agree. I don't know how he knew that. But I'll never forget that conversation. He said, one day they won't make a tire here. So you spend some time here. You you graduate from UD. And your first job was at at IBM. Can you you tell us a little bit about that, that first role? And did you know that you'd end up spending your whole career there? Well, um, first of all, I, di- I didn't know that I, I'd end up spending my, my whole career there. But I, I do want to back up. There was a professor that, that recommended me for an internship, a business professor, um, when my junior year. And my first job while I was at UD, uh, 20 hours a week, I would go down to the, the IBM office on First Street there and uh, – my job was to take the selected typewriters to the new law offices around the city and help install them and make sure they work correctly. So um, that was how I got into IBM. 
for two years as an uh, intern. Then uh, grad- upon graduation, the first job I received was in Lima, Ohio. I was a new business salesperson, and I had what they called back then a small general business uh, territory. And I was selling, uh, you know, general business, eight-inch disc computers to uh, accountants, uh, uh, job shops, and agricultural farms, basically. I remember one package was a swine management package. Uh, come a long way, Dean Collier, from those Wait, days. tell me that again. But uh, <laughs> it, it, was a, it was a swine management package that you sold to farmers to help them vaccinate and track uh, their hogs. Wow. So I've, I've come a long way from those days. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my very first job. It was a new business job. You had to go in, establish yourself, create the need. I mean, it was all the textbook uh, sales training that uh, the sales profession teams are, are receiving uh, right now. Uh, so that was my first job. In Lima, Ohio. Well, I, I love that you brought us back to the internship. You know, that's something that we we preach to our students. You know, the the internship is going to either set you up for full time employment at that company, or or offer you some experience uh, and some expertise that's going to get you your your first job. So, about ninety percent of our students do have an internship before they graduate, but we're, we're continually pushing that. We'd like to see that number go to a hundred very soon. So how did, I'll how did you your career another. progress? So I spent about eight years in Lyme, Ohio and, uh, on my, my selling skills. And from there I, I moved to Detroit, which was our area office. Uh, and in Detroit was uh, where I became a first-line manager. I had a team of uh, about eight or nine sales reps, and uh, that was where I developed my talents and my skills around the distribution industry, which we defined as retailers, transportation companies, and CPG firms. And I spent quite a bit of time there. Uh, leading uh, the team and selling solutions in that space. And then this wave called e-business hit. And uh, the regional manager at the time asked me to come lead that initiative. So uh, I went from there to New York uh, to set up uh, the e-business solutions team for all of our resellers. And I performed that role for about two years. And then I uh, was tapped to go over to Japan. So what what year did you and, uh, move into the e-business role? Ooh, I, that was about circa 95, 96. So that's early, early days. Early days, early days. We were working with... Uh, Clients like Barnes and Noble, Victoria's Secret, on the er- all of the early websites that were going up. That had and been uh, what's that? I said that had to have been great experience. That was a great experience, and um, 
then I uh, received a, an opportunity to go work uh, for as the executive assistant. Uh, this job probably really was the one where uh, there was significant growth and development. Uh, the executive assistant uh, for the senior vice president of the company who owned Global Sales. So he owned the whole revenue number for the corporation, and I worked very closely with him as his executive assistant and uh, learned quite a bit about coverage models, um, business case planning, business development, succession planning, um, executive strategies. And we were uh, holding uh, conference calls with all the geographies around the world. And uh, it really gave me a, a good sense of uh, how business climbs vary on a global basis. You know, we just had IBM's current CFO, Jim Cavanaugh, is also a UD alum. He, he was on campus a couple months ago, and he brought his executive assistant with him. And we were sitting in a, a meeting with 10 or 15 of our students who, who run some of our, this, the organizations in the school of business. And, and I think they had kind of assumed that, that Kara was sort of an administrative assistant. And, and, and somebody asked a question to Jim, and he, he turned it to Kara. And then she, she talked about her career and, you know, she, she was, a I think an MBA from Stanford and then, you know, shared a couple different roles and you could see the students eyes just light up going, Whoa, uh, this is somebody different than I, than I thought you were. And, and I think that's a, I don't know that that's unique to IBM, but I, I think it's offering, you know, a front row seat to here's what your senior executives are doing. And it's not a, it's not an administrative role. It's a, it's a real business function. It's a real business function role, and uh, you know you're expected to 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 know as much as your executive knows uh, about the strategy, where we're going, the vision, because uh, it's a great launching pad for you in a senior executive role. The other beauty of it is that as you travel, just as uh, Jim's executive assistant did, when we went to the different geographies, the uh, senior executives there got a chance to to evaluate me, uh, look at my capabilities, and uh, that's how I landed my next role uh, back in North America. Uh, from that role, I, I came back to run uh, all of our, our North American distribution industry business. So Tyrone, as somebody that spent 39 years at, at one company, how do you, how do you feel about the, the more recent trend where em- employees are, are switching jobs uh, a lot more frequently than, than was considered acceptable in the past. You know, I, I get it. I, I really get it. Uh, as as my, my peers and family tell me all the time, I'm, I'm a unicorn, right? Um, <laughs> so some 39 years. And, and, and I saw this coming. I'll never forget an interview I had with a young man. He was a U of M senior trying to recruit him and uh, we're having this conversation. He was talking about, he's asking about, you know, equity stock options. And we're having this conversation about, you know, over time as your responsibilities and contributions grow, there'll 
potentially be an opportunity for you to position, uh, participate in the program. And, and he stops me and he says, um, you know, I, I watched immediate family members for, you know, years and decades into companies and they were laid off. And he said, I, I will never, ever be that person that um, psychologically it's tough on people to go through that. That my model going forward is if it takes me three to four years, every three to four years to get a equity position I think I deserve and a salary commensurate with my value, I'm willing to do that. So I, I think that, that's one. A lot of students watched, a lot of young people rather watched their, their families, immediate families commit to corporate America and they saw the downsizing of America and it, it was very tough. The second point was when I was coming through, it was, you know, the bunch, you know, Burroughs, Univac, HCR. Now with the new growth companies and the FANG, their, their model for recruiting was really around uh, let's grow together. Let's get wealthy together, early equity up front. So I think as students look back on that, they're saying the model has evolved. Uh, if there's an opportunity to get in at the ground level, I want to do that. But as this young man said to me, he said, I view myself as the corporation. And that's the way I have to look at it, which was a very different twist. And uh, I think that's continued to progress. People are really investing heavily in their skills and they're very confident about where they can add value and differentiate themselves in enterprises. Yeah, I um, I watched my dad lose lose his job three times over five over a five year period. Uh, so that you know that that, that story kind of resonates with me. I, I definitely watched that. I I I went a very different path in, in terms of choosing a choosing an industry that's. Uh, fairly stable. Uh, you know, I, I might end up being a unicorn here. I've, I've been at UD for 16 years, but, uh, definitely understand that, that perspective. And, uh, you know, the thing I tell a lot of our students as they're, as they're graduating and they say, I don't know what to do. So we'll do the thing you think you want to do the most. Right. And then if you don't like it, you can switch and go do something else. And now you've found some information, you know, you know, which function or which, um, which, which area of business you don't want to you don't want to do for the rest of your life. You, you've got to start somewhere. So you might as well start where you think you're going to like it best and then figure it out. It, it, it's so true. And, and circling back to the, the comment I made earlier about, uh, you know, what my dad told me, I'll, ju I'll just close out with you. After I graduated and I went back home, uh, I, I saw a lot of people in that same position who were 20 and 35 years and they were at a certain income level. What happened is they re-entered the workforce, but it was in service-based jobs at 25, 30% less than they were making in the factory. So they, they re-entered the workforce as security guards, delivery, I mean, whatever they could get. So it's, it's a, really a tough cycle. So I, I get it. I get it. Continue to invest in yourself and continue to find ways to add value. You know, in the last 
point I'll make is quality of life is important to the young workforce today. I want to have enough time to enjoy myself and enjoy the things in life that are important to me. That work-life balance, uh, I know when I was coming out of school, it was heads down, get a job, do what it takes, and provide for your family. This new workforce, work-life balance is very important. Do, do you find that to be true as, uh, as you talk to students who are about to embark? I think it's true not only of our students who are, you know, heading out into the workforce. It's it's true of the younger employees of the university. Um, I mean, even when I was when I was interviewing for this job as dean, I was asked, you know, how do, how do I balance my work and, and my personal life, right? And so it, it it's something a, a lot of people are thinking a lot more about. Companies are having to pivot and think more about it as well. I was reading a recent article in the, in the wall street journal about accounting firms and, and where they used to, you know, they, they'd have extra work and they would just find one of their associates and say, Hey, who wants to, you know, who wants to make a name for themselves, stick around this weekend and do this project. And, and now nobody's raising their hand <laughs> and they're having to figure out how do you, how do you, how do you motivate this workforce to take on those extra projects? And, um, you know, how do you get, how do you get people to want to stick around and become partners? So it's a, it's a challenge across multiple different industries. Um, but uh, I think it's a, it's a valuable thing for, for the employees. Uh, it's a valuable thing for, for me to have, to have a balance, to be able to, to be a husband, to be a dad, um, but also to, to do this job well. So it, it, it takes work. And I agree. And the other, the other phenomenon that's taken place is, a pension is becoming a unicorn. Uh, it's it's really a, a self-managed financial model, and so uh, you know there were days where you know you you stayed online on board and you committed yourself that, that at the end you'd get a pension. Well, now that's all changed as well. Yeah, and UDE I think is fairly common, at least in our in our industry and. Um, for, for many of the jobs I'm hearing about from our, from our recent, recent grads, it, it, it's a, it's a defined contribution, right? So it, I, I'm putting, I'm putting money in They're they're, they're giving me a match. Um, but it's not, Hey, work here right. for 30 years and then we're going to give you X dollars for the rest of your life. Um, so it's, it's, it's exactly Correct. what you, what you described. Um, the nice part, I think that UD has that, that other companies should mimic if they're not doing so already is that the the match that UD gives you goes up the longer you stay here? So there is still an incentive to to stick around, stick around longer, but it's it's less than what it used to be at, at many of the other companies that were that were giving defined benefits pensions. Tyrone, what uh, what advice would you give to current students or or recent grads as as they start to enter the business world? I would say, kind um, of summary, actually, of what we've been talking about. N- number one. Uh, find out what your passion is in, in a competency area. Uh, be an expert at that, wh- whether it's in, in, in technology, business processing, be an expert at that. Number two, figure out a way to align it with an industry and then be open to work with all aspects of the business. Uh, as as you build your skills and capabilities. 
Um, soft skills are so important in differentiating yourself as you move through the corporation. How you communicate, how you present yourself. Then that last one is, is so important in today's world, and that's what, I, what I'd call humanity skills. Being able to collaborate with individuals and being sensitive to differences, cultures, uh, if you're in a global environment, customs and uh, laws of the land. But I, I think uh, humanity skills are, are going to be so important going forward. And a lot of people don't talk about those. It, it's something that I I agree with you 100%. We don't, we don't talk enough about them. I think it's something about the culture here at UD that many of our students do leave with a good foundation, right? They've still got to grow more and, and develop those skills, but it, it's such a, it's such a social place here and students are engaging with people from, from many different backgrounds that they, they've got, I think a pretty good foundation to build on of that sort of those humanity skills, that, that empathy for others um, that ends up being a really valuable leadership skill. Yes. And circling back to the first question you asked me about my, most recent role in divestitures, that was one of the skills that I, I really, really relied on in that role because you're, you're talking about thoughtful execution of people's careers, roles, moving from one corporation to the next corporation. How do I do my job? What does this mean to my career advancement? How does it affect my benefits? A lot of sensitivity and thoughtfulness uh, that goes into a role like that. Absolutely. Is there, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners or, or any questions you have for me, Tyrone? I would just like to say the, uh, the base of skills, uh, insight, and awareness that I received in my four years at the University of Dayton were, uh, were, were bar none for me. And I, I will tell you, one of the things that really um, was the proof in the pudding for me, uh, I was 26 countries, doing business in 26 countries. And no matter where I ran into someone and I told them that uh, I graduated from UD, there was this, this gleam in their eye. And, and to a letter, I'd get either great school or we know you got a great education and they always had someone that they knew that came through the doors of the university. So I will tell you that the cachet it carries is very global in nature. Thank you for taking the time to, to chat with me today. Uh, it really enjoyed uh, hearing more about your, your career and your time at UD and I'm, I'm sure our, our listeners enjoyed it as well. Um, you know, look forward to seeing you back on campus here soon. Uh, thanks again to, to our listeners, and I hope you'll join us again next time on the Business Class Podcast. Go Flyers. Thank you. Go Flyers. Thanks for joining us for the Business Class Podcast. If you'd like to engage with us further, please follow us on social media. Our Instagram and Facebook accounts all use the name SBA. You can also email the Dean's Office with questions or suggestions for future podcasts at sbadean at udayton.edu. No matter where you are on your career path, we are proud that you're part of our Dayton Flyer family.